Sustainably Influenced, the podcast guiding you through the minefield of sustainability with your hosts Charlotte Williams and Bianca Foley. This season we are deep diving into the relationship between fashion and sustainability, discussing everything from intersectionality to tech-led innovations in the industry and what consumers can do to make a real positive impact. episode we wanted to discuss what it takes to create a sustainable fashion brand. A lot of our audience are entrepreneurs and we thought it would be good to really do a deep dive. First let's get into what sustainable fashion actually is and what it isn't to make sure that we're on the same page. Sustainable isn't exactly the same thing as ethical although a brand can be both. When it comes to sustainability we are talking about how a brand impacts the environment. Ethical fashion, on the other hand, concerns moral issues such as working conditions and the welfare of animals, which is important too, obviously. So Stephen, welcome to the podcast. And where should we start? (laughs) Thanks for having me. Where do we start? When we start to think about sustainable fashion, I suppose the starting point is to really think about how we might define that. And traditionally, we would define sustainable fashion using what we call the triple bottom line process. And the triple bottom line refers to that the product or the business is socially sustainable. So that means that it doesn't hurt kind of anyone in the supply chain. It's environmentally sustainable. It doesn't damage the environment. And last but um, certainly not least, that it's actually financially sustainable, that it makes money. So you can be the most sustainable person in the world, really. You can design organic everything, but if no one wants to buy it, you're not creating a business. And that has knock-on effects. Your suppliers don't get paid. You know, your manufacturers don't get paid. So that kind of financial health is a very serious part of sustainability. Yeah, I think that's something I've actually never thought about. <laughs> like, if no one buys it, you're just putting more crap into the world. Actually, yeah. <laughs> when you've just put it like that, I went, oh, God, yes. Because you can make stuff and everything that's being made, we're making it in the hope that somebody's buying it, aren't we? It's not a given that somebody's going to buy it. Yeah. And I I think then from a designer's perspective, you know, fashion design's gone through and certainly fashion design education has gone through really significant changes in the last, say, two decades at least since since the turn of the 21st century. And previous to that, you know, fashion design was treated as as similar to, to, say, visual arts, where the artist would create something and either someone would like it or they wouldn't. And, and that was it. And that was fine. Whereas that creates a lot of waste in the fashion industry. That creates a huge amount of waste because you're, you're kind of doing it like, you know, you're cooking spaghetti. You're, you're chucking things against the wall. Hopefully one's going to stick, you know, and someone's going to buy it. That's great. And you accept that 80% of the stuff that you produce, no one's really going to buy. That shift in the 21st century has really changed. So instead of focusing on the product as designers, we need to focus on people. So we need to understand what people want, you know, what, what, uh, what drives them, what people need. And in that way, we align ourselves with other design industries. If you think of something like the automotive industry, if you went into a showroom and you saw this nice car that you loved and it looked amazing, but you couldn't fit in it, you would never buy it. Yet we go into shoe shops all the time. We put shoes on that we love the look of, but that absolutely kill our feet. And we think, yeah, I'll buy these. Like completely insane. Why on earth are we buying things that just don't work for our bodies? I'm laughing because I've done it. We've all done it, yeah. <laughs> like, yep, they're beautiful. They're really nice. Oh, they're a little bit tight, but I'm sure that they'll stretch. <laughs> and then after that first wear, you're still sitting there like, no, it's not going to happen. They're going to slice up my feet before then. But it's true. You wouldn't buy something that isn't 
necessary or the perfect fit, quote mm. unquote, for your life. So why do we do it when it comes to fashion? I mean, that's a good question. I think I think we do it for, for lots of reasons. And I think we're fundamentally social creatures as humans and we want to fit in. That's where trends come in. You know, we want to be part of the, of the cool crowd. We want to be part of, we want to feel a sense of belonging. And I think from a from a designer's perspective, what we have to do is we have to understand that and we have to understand a person's lifestyle and what they need from their lifestyle. And you know, you, you've had guests on before that have spoken about this, the idea of kind of emotional connection to clothes. And that's a that's a big deal. In fashion and psychology terms, it's it's called enclosed cognition, you know, the way we feel when we wear clothes. It's really important to to think about that as a designer, not just to be like, well, they're gonna like this because it's red, but actually if the person puts this on and they feel comfortable, they feel happy, they feel empowered, they feel emboldened. Well, they're not going to throw it away because every single time they put it on, they get that feeling again. That stops becoming product design and starts becoming user experience design for fashion. Sorry, I was just writing that down in clothes cognition. That's really cool. I mean, yeah, there's this great experiment that was done where they got white coats and they got a group of, of kids, college kids, broke them up into three, didn't give coats to a third, and the other two thirds they gave coats to. And one group, they said, this is a doctor's coat. And the other group, they said, this is an artist's smock. And they got them to perform all three groups to perform all these tasks. And the ones who were like in the doctor's coat, they performed so much better on the kind of scientific, logical, because they felt like, oh, this is like the thing that doctors wear. And the artist guys were like, well, I'm a bit more creative because I'm wearing the outfit. It's really, it's really eye-opening. And when you read it and then you think about yourself, you're like, oh my God, I do the exact same thing. So moving on, it's one thing to buy from like your favorite sustainable brands because a lot of people, obviously, there's more sustainable brands popping up. They're promoting themselves. A lot more consumers are leaning that way. However, if you're starting your own brand, what should people consider when looking into selecting eco-friendly materials? I mean, that's a really, really good question. And actually, it's a, it's a quite a tricky question. I think the the first step when, when you're starting your own brand is to really think where you fit, where you fit in the fashion world. So actually, does the world need this brand? And that's tough because we all want to, you know, we want to start the brands, but the world doesn't need more fashion. There's heaps of it out there, to be honest. But it needs really good fashion. It needs kind of well-made, well-constructed and fashion that people love. So in terms of thinking about materials, the key thing for any young designer or any young person starting a label is to think about transparency. So an organic cotton T-shirt that doesn't fit any human's body is absolutely a waste of time. An inorganic cotton T-shirt that fits a body and is worn 500 times is so much better for the environment than the organic shirt. Then that's a really important one. So I, I would say in terms of selecting materials, you've got to go with quality first. And and quality doesn't necessarily just mean expensive. It means the right material for the right product. So when I was a young designer, I, I, I ran a label for, for many years. And one of the things that we first looked at when we first started our label is where do we find material? And, you know, I come from a, a country town in Australia, as you can tell from my accent. And there just wasn't many fabric shops. So one thing we just out of necessity was we spoke to charity shops, you know, 80% of stuff going to charity shops have to be thrown away. So we asked, okay, what have you got that's damaged that we can take? And they would, they had heaps of stuff. And in the end, you know, we ended up with this amazing high quality materials that other people couldn't have access to because our supply chain was, was unique that gave us an ability to create really unique products. There's lots of really techie solutions in there about like recycle polyester and, and all these kinds of things. And they're all fantastic, but only fantastic when used in the right way. You know, there's there's no point in a fast fashion label using organic materials or using recycled polyester because 
it's just going to smash the world anyway. It's going to destroy the environment anyway because the volumes are, are so massive. You know, and th- those kind of three phases in a product's life cycle have to be looked at individually. You know, there's the kind of pre-production phase where the resources are created. Digging a hole in the earth to to get our oil to turn into plastic to make into fabric is crazy. Okay, so taking recycled bottles and turning them into plastic, that's that's less bad. You know, then we've got our kind of manufacturer phase. Great. Okay, so if we're using our recycled PET from, let's say, China, cool, it's shipped around the world to be turned into fabric and then shipped around the world again to be sold in stores. Well, that's not great. So that sucks. And then you've got your use phase. So as a consumer, you can only wear that product once before you have to wash it because it's made of recycled polyester and you get all sweaty and it smells. Okay, so you're washing that every time you wear it, which massive impact uh, in the amount of water you use. So that's terrible. You know, so you've got to kind of go back through the phases and make sure that each one of those is ticking the right box. But actually, it's up to consumers and designers to make those decisions. So ultimately, it's about transparency. Oh, my God. This is, I'm laughing so much because I'm just thinking about all these massive, massive brands that are killing the earth, but then they release a recycled nylon collection. I bring up briefly like every episode, but they have recycled collection. And I was like, oh, cute that they've like done that. But this is so funny because I thought it was a positive that they were doing it, even though it was a drop in their ocean. But thinking about it is actually also a negative now. Yeah, I think in, in design, we call it like this idea of like being less bad isn't the same as being good. Yes. Yeah. I liked the point that you said where you, you said you can do it, but you've got to do it in the right way. And, yeah. and I think that's what it is. And people are like, well, we're going to do these recycled collections because it makes us so good. But it doesn't because it's, recycled collection made out of organic uh, materials that aren't really necessary when they're being created in a bad way they're still depleting from the earth's resources and they're still creating it at this ridiculous volume Mm. if they said let's do let's just half the the amount of all of our the stock that we already produce that to me it makes more of an impact than them creating an organic or recycled collection at what 200,000 units Unnecessary. It doesn't even make economic sense. I mean, I know I, I look. I can talk from the lofty heights of being an academic. So I, I you know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not in the trenches trying to make a profit from selling clothes. You know, so so I, I, I acknowledge that. But this kind of race to the bottom about producing greater volumes and slashing your profit margin to get cheaper and cheaper clothes is absolutely insane. Why would you do that from an economics perspective? Because at some point you're going to hit a wall where you where your garments aren't profitable that impacts somebody. And and as we saw last year, the people that impacts are the people who make the clothes. You know, massive corporations not paying rent on premises, not paying manufacturers, writing off entire collections, entire seasons, factories going under, local economies around the world going south because someone, you know, Western countries decided they're just not going to pay their bill. Absolutely horrendous. I think about this all the time. Why do we need so... I love fashion. Mm -hmm. I love clothes. I love looking nice. But we don't need all of this stuff because I always end up buying something that I've seen someone else wear and I get like massive FOMO when I've like missed a drop or something from like last year. And it's like, we could just sell the same things over and over and over and over again. And then we'd be fine. I mean, I think I, I think this is this is the kind of flip side of this. You know, often sustainable academics, especially sustainable fashion academics, uh, are in the, the kind of headspace of consuming less. And, you know, Agreed. Consuming less is, well, that's the way, you know, we just, we just buy less stuff. But actually, as humans, we're kind of 
genetically designed, we're evolutionarily designed to collect things. Ever since there were humans, we were decorating ourselves, whether it be jewelry or painting or something. You know, we're, we're called the decorated ape for a reason. You know, we, we, we want to wear things. We want to kind of be part of something. We want to communicate our identities through our bodies. That's not going to stop. So we have to figure out ways to do that that are not going to destroy the world that we're trying to inhabit. I'm finding this all so interesting. It's such a nice change of point of view for us, I think. Ordinarily with the podcast, where we've kind of taken it has been like a question and answer from a brand or something, or getting to know about a particular product. And speaking about it in this way, I think is definitely giving the flip side of the coin. I think from from my perspective, it's I've been a fashion lecturer for nearly 20 years. You know, I started when I was very young, obviously. But for me, the more I am involved in fashion, I absolutely love it and have my entire life. So like it, that'll, that'll never stop. But the more I see, you know, we just take a few layers off the top and you can start to see that it's, that it's not great. And actually, it's not great for everyone. Consumers are, are being victimized as much as anybody else, you know, squeezed their money, made to feel bad. That's the, the classic fashion paradigm for consumers is we're going to show you a picture of someone who looks better than you and make you feel bad for not being that person. And then we're going to offer you a solution. It's like being a drug dealer, really. We're going to offer you the solution to be that person. And then you're going to buy the thing we tell you to buy, and then you'll be fine for a few months. We'll be back, don't worry. And we'll tell you you don't look good in that either. That's a great analogy right there. Charlotte, that's the soundbite. We've got it. Oh, great. <laughs> I like you said, and we'll tell you that you don't look great then either. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is so funny. What I wanted to talk about, I've want to link it back to fast fashion and ethics and the mix of sustainability there's the idea that we want to have sustainable products and this word actually we discussed this yesterday Bianca about the use of the word sustainability and sustainable and how it does mean lots of different things people use it in different ways I have one idea of sustainability another person might have another idea that line between sustainability and or a sustainable product and an ethical product where does the line fall, and what do they both actually mean? It's a yeah, it's a fairly it's a fairly fairly blurry line, to be honest. So sustainability effectively means that it doesn't do damage. You know, it doesn't, and, and I think we can kind of say that in its broadest terms, it doesn't do damage to your your, your yeah. financial line, the, the environment, and the world. But there's a there's a great book called Cradle to Cradle by uh, Braungart and and McDonough where they propose a new system for design, which is an, a very very interesting read and groundbreaking, I would say. And they they kind of have a got the word sustainability, and they talk about this idea of like, she's actually she's like good, like if someone asked you about your relationship and you said my relationship is sustainable, then that's not describing a positive relationship. That's describing one that's not terrible, but definitely not good. So they took this idea of like, well, actually, design should do good, you know, not just not do bad, but it, but it should do good. So that aside, the difference between sustainable and ethical is ethical is really about people. Those three things, people, profit, planet, it's focusing on people. So is everybody in the chain treated fairly? Now, we can kind of define what fairly means, but there's some great resources out, out there to to give a good analysis of how transparent businesses are and labels are, and some great resources out there to see how they rate. But really, it's if you can sleep at night, then you're okay. But I would say that often as fashion designers and as fashion businesses, we focus on a little bit. So, okay, yeah, I'm buying from a factory and the people in the factory get paid a living wage. Phenomenal. Better than 90% of fashion labels out there. That's fantastic. But 
let's say you're selling on an incredibly popular sales platform on online and the person delivering your stuff is working 17 hours and doesn't have toilet breaks and the person working in the factory or in the warehouse doesn't have toilet breaks well maybe not so ethical okay sure all right no problem i won't buy online i'll go into a high high street store wander in fantastic ah oh, the person in the high street store is being paid minimum wage all right doesn't feel that that great where does the electricity for this store come from oh not in renewable, you know. So actually, we start kind of getting layer and layer and layer and layer. And ethics can be whatever you want them to be, as long as you can sleep at night, you're all good. That's the tricky thing. Yeah, that's the thing. And I think we discussed this yesterday as well. But the human element, we don't really like to think about humans because it makes us feel bad. Yeah, it's weird when you think about it because we can be, as you said, there's so many factors to think about when you're starting a business or when you're running a business of any kind but specifically more for sustainable fashion brands when you're running that or you're, there's just so many things to think about. It goes from the store to the people, to the the packaging. I mean, is everything recyclable? Is it is it made from recycled materials? It's, it's all from right down from the concept right to the distribution side of it. It's, there's just so many different points to consider. So is there anything else that you think that most brands when they're starting up don't think about and don't factor in? Is there anything that you think that they should really, I guess, think outside of the box about and put into their business plans? Or I, I would say if there's if there's one thing, well, a few things, you know, and again, I'm an academic, so you have to stop me talking. But I think most brands forget that they're people. So most people try and most people fail in getting things sustainable. And we all do. I drive a car. It's much more convenient than not driving a car. I live quite a distance from my work. I have to deal with that. That's fine. If you're flying overseas to source fabrics, well, geez, what are the carbon miles on that trip? Okay, but that's the best way to source fabrics because they're difficult to see online. So I think the, the key thing is to just be transparent about everything. And in that way, you can say, look, this is where this product is from. This is who makes it. And there, there used to be a, a fantastic label called Honest Buy, which no longer exists, unfortunately, based out of Belgium. And, and when you would purchase their products, they would break down the price and show you how much people got paid and how much profit was made. And it was, you know, significant amount of profit because a significant amount of work goes into it. And I think we're we're so used to this world where we're trying to hide numbers and hide profit margins because actually money's being made from the sweat and blood of people who aren't being paid. That if we actually just said, look, I can't afford organic cotton, but what I can do is I can make you a garment that will fit your body and fit your lifestyle and will last minimum five years. Okay, and if you're not happy with yeah. that, you bring it back and I'll give you another one. And in, in that sense, well, you could probably charge double, triple the price of your competitors. There are plenty of companies out there that offer lifetime guarantees that make exceptional amounts of profit because of that. You know, because people know buying the product that they can trust and they might not take it back ever, but they know, hey, look, and I'm going to get a pretty good product out of this. You're buying a two pound t-shirt, then you know that someone somewhere has been exploited for that t-shirt. Yeah. It's funny because Everlane do that now, don't they? Where they break down the cost on their website of everything and how it but I think they break it down, but they don't mention the profit side of it. But they tell you what the cost is to create the product and why they've done the markup in that way. But they then don't shout about what they've made off of it. And I think what you said there about the profit, it's almost as if brands are almost like, oh, no, we don't make mm. any money. We don't make any money at all. But yeah. then you see their financials come in the next year and you're like, billions or millions made. And this, that, the only like, yeah, you're definitely getting paid somehow. I mean, there's no way that the founder of Inditex 
is what the second or third richest person in the world. He didn't do that by selling stuff, exactly. <laughs> selling stuff that cost quite a city. So <laughs> profit is something that I think so many people don't talk about. And we all know that it happens. Money makes the world go round, essentially. But it's almost like a taboo subject but it shouldn't be i think certainly in the uk there is a you know and you know in in, in working in organizations as well that you're discouraged from discussing your salary with your colleagues and things mm-hmm. like that and it's used as a way to not necessarily control people but to just to effectively make more money because you can if you keep people if you don't give people information people don't take action with fashion companies if you know that that two pound t-shirt has given someone somewhere i don't know one p that's their salary from that t-shirt then you can make a choice and if you choose to buy the T-shirt, fine. Like, But you've made it knowing going in that that's what it costs. Unfortunately, that's also the human element that gets forgotten. And when I think about sustainability, that's pretty much the only thing I think about. And I try to explain this, that my sister is a stylist and she works very much in the kind of like mainstream fashion, but she wears a lot of fast fashion. She's like slowly weaning off, which is nice. Yeah. That's coming with age. I was talking to her about this recently, and I was just like, Yes, that dress is five pounds, and that's a bargain, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. But let's think about the person that made it. Like, this is a person in a factory, probably looks like us, might have a few kids. And if this is five pounds, let's half that, so two pounds fifty, probably half that again, because that's the, what the middleman will get, and then half it again. Like, what is she getting? to feed her family and then she was like oh shit didn't think about that and it's when you put it into like really basic words of like people aren't being paid essentially people can't live lives and it's a privileged thing that we get to live in the UK or in Australia or in a country that we do get paid properly to live and we do have great opportunities but we need to really start talking about I personally believe sustainability on a human level Mm. because it's really really sad if you think about it that we're moaning about our salaries and how much we're not getting paid or how much we can't do the restaurants we can't go to the drinks we can't drink and whatever the bags we can't buy then someone can't even like like if they lived here they wouldn't even be able to get the bus and the pandemic has probably done that for a lot of us is to think like Mm. we all think oh it was not great but then you see someone who's actually genuinely in dire circumstances. Yeah. You know, and you think, wow, okay, well, to be honest, the fact that I, I've got a flushing toilet and that I can, I, I'm not worried where I'm going to eat for the next week is enormous. Yeah. And if that's, that's a daily existence for somebody who's effectively trapped in a system because they are tied to those kind of jobs because they're subsistence. If you lose that job, you're scuppered. Like there's nothing. There's yeah. no welfare state. Goodbye. We're putting somebody in modern day slavery so that we can tell our friends that we paid a few quid for an item of clothing. Like that little, little high that we have when someone says, oh, I love your insert garment here. And you go, thanks. I got it for a tenner. Is that pride? Yeah. You feel good about that because you got mm. it for a bargain. You're like, yeah, well, uh, this person who works in the factory, I got it because I stood on them to get it. I trod, trod them into yeah. the ground so I can get this thing. That feels less good. Yeah. This is really sad and really depressing. <laughs> <laughs> it changes the narrative though and it makes it it brings that human aspect to the forefront. And I think as Charlotte said, we need to really, really push the human side mm. of sustainable fashion. That's why campaigns like Who Made My Clothes oh, yeah. and all these things are so important mm. because mm. it just reminds you 
your clothes don't just come into existence, people. Somebody made it. And not just somebody making it, somebody designed it. Somebody came up with the concept and somebody made the fabric and it's somebody harvested the crop to make the fabric. Or like, mm. it's all these things that go into it. Yes, you got your five pound dress or your five pound t-shirt. But as you said, and as you broke it down to your sister, it's like, what are the people actually getting paid out of that? And where they're demanding thousands of pounds for our salaries and being upset that, as you said, that we can't. To us, not being able to afford to eat out is like a travesty. But there's people that can't afford to do basic everyday mm. things that people should be, a human should be entitled to. And it, it's a human rights issue, essentially. Yeah. It is a depressing topic, but we'll, we'll try and change we'll, the we can, we can, Yeah, let's bring it up. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to flip it, but I'm just going to put in my one link. I do this every episode, but my one link to education. And today's link <laughs> is, it's the lack of education at on a schooling side. Yeah. <laughs> I love talking about education reform, but we don't know where our clothes come from because we don't get taught how clothes are made. Yeah, You go to fashion school or design school and I guess you learn about that. But as a kid, you don't think this jumper is made from a fabric which is woven from plants or from plastic. Like it's, it's actually quite confusing, I personally think, as a human to think that like nylon is plastic Do you know like it could yeah. the fact that you could turn a bottle into a dress that is a little bit mind-blowing so i know this because i've googled it but you don't learn that your t-shirt's made of a crop at school i, I think you're 100 right charlotte and and if you think about how something like fashion mirrors the food industry quite a lot yeah so if you think of like nutritional education in schools and how lacking that has been and you know positive things happening in that, in that space, which is great. And then even general public, the, the, the education of the general public about food and nutrition, how much that's changed over the last couple of decades and the, the kind of rise in organic and slow and all local, all these kinds of amazing things around food. We can we can see parallels that in, in fashion. And yeah, people have no idea. You know, when I first started fashion school back in 1999, when the world was very different and there were two trade centers still in the in New York, it was a positive thing to design something in Australia and have it produced in China. That was seen as very like, this a hugely positive thing, you know, trade, 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 all this kind of stuff. And then the world kind of went dark a bit and only in the last five years or so have people actually just started to ask questions about like, okay, yeah, designing and making stuff as a fashion student, you know, I understand how garments made, you know, we're taught that, all that kind of stuff. But what happens then? Because usually what happens yeah. in, in, a, in a label, in a, in a kind of mainstream label, for example, is designer, it ha it's hand over to someone else. The designer designs it, pattern cutter produces a pattern, maybe your sample machinist makes it, it gets signed off and then goes to someone else. Yeah. And often the designers don't really know. Now, designers often visit factories and do quality assurance and all that kind of stuff, but often not really. So it's kind of out, mm. of, out of sight, out of mind. Definitely. That's how I think it is for most products that are made. Unless we have any sort of hand in the whole manufacturing process, we don't really think about how things mm. come into being. It's just in a shop. You go in, you give them your money or your card, and you pay for it and you leave because... That's all that it is. Mm. We don't think about anything before that point, before it getting to that shelf and you picking it up and taking it home. I find it really strange. I think you and I, Charlotte, we're very different in our mindset. We always think about the why, the what, mm. everything else that goes around anything. So I think that's why we kind of started this podcast because we wanted yeah. to know the why, we wanted to understand more. I spent years not thinking about that. You've definitely thought about the why a lot longer than I have. 
spent years not knowing anything, which is quite weird because my nan was a dressmaker. Fashion has been in my life forever, but I've never thought about where anything comes from until the last five years. That's a positive though, right? I mean, I think yeah. I think that's a really big thing. I I, I noticed I was a, an academic in Australia. And I moved to the UK to teach, and I, I live in Wales and I teach in Wales. And even that, you know, the kind of it was quite a big cultural shift for me. And the Welsh kind of cultural outlook on life is very different to Australian outlook on life. And when I came here, you know, Australians are very outward people because there's not many of us, and because we travel all the time, because. There's no other way to get anywhere other than flying to the other side of the world. I found a very different approach to to fashion in Australia, which is very kind of focused on Asia, to fashion in, in the UK, which is very focused on Europe. And actually, yeah. the Southern Hemisphere can seem quite dark when you're in the Northern Hemisphere because you don't really know what's kind of going on there. And I found that actually there are a group of people that I taught who were very keen to change the world and very keen to make it a, a, a different, better place. So much so that we we redesigned all of our courses to make that happen. You know, the focus on all of our all of our fashion courses at USW now are about, well, you have the power as a designer. So what are you going to do to change the world? You know, it's incredibly positive because it's not the same as, you know, the industry is terrible. Good luck. You're bad for buying from it. But it's like, well, you're a change agent now. We're going to give you a set of skills and you have the design, you have the drive. So what are you going to do to make it a better place? It's flipped the script on how we teach sustainability and it's flipped the script on how we teach fashion, you know, fashion design or design in, in general. You know, It is very much about the why. Why do you need to design this? Does it need to exist? What function will it serve? What's function beyond keeping the wind off a body will it perform? And it changes the way people design and it changes the way people think. And it's, a, it's incredibly inspiring to see young people excited about burning down an old world and building a new one yeah definitely that's very cool and I guess that was crucial that flip of the switch and mindset I'm going to go and into the design side so you obviously teach courses on fashion design and all things fashion but when it comes to creating a brand what innovations are there in the actual design and conceptual stage that people should be considering so what should people considering when they're studying a new brand well I mean the first thing is does the brand need to exist that can be a really tough question, to be honest. Most likely, no, is yes, the answer. I, I 100% agree. <laughs> Does it need to be? Yeah. Not necessarily. Uh, unfortunately, most likely, no. But designers are great problem solvers. And we use this. We use a term at USW called full systems thinking. And, and it says that like the development of the product, the fashion garment, is like it's one step in an enormous journey of design. And that journey of design starts with asking the right question. And the right question is something like, what do you need? Then that's a good question to ask for a consumer. So what do you need? And the consumer might say, well, I need clothes to wear out on the weekend. You're like, well, you probably don't, actually. But what do you need? Well, you know what? I've been inside for a year and a half. I want to feel special. Great. Okay, so that's the beginning. So if your problem is, I don't feel special and I want to feel special, then you can use design thinking to solve that problem. The answer to that problem might be a garment, but it might not be. It might be something else. It might be an experience. It might be a feeling. It might be the way you connect with other people. And you can do all those things through a garment, but actually the focus on that problem is more important than the solution. In contemporary fashion, what we're seeing, and it's very cutting edge, but what we're seeing is a shift away from physical garments. So people actually having physical clothes into digital garments. So people designing in a digital space using some amazing 3D design technology that allows us to live all of our fashion fantasies in a way that doesn't actually involve buying real clothes. 
if what we want is a great photo for Instagram or to feel fantastic on a night out, well, do we need to actually do that? Do we need to go out to do that? Not, not really. You know, is if is buying the kind of next latest thing, the the rarest thing, is that what we're after? Because I want to collect, I want to hunt. You know, we're humans. Well, I can do that in a digital space without actually having to produce clothes. And so we're seeing this. You know, you see the rise of NFTs and the rise of digital clothing. It, it is becoming very small at the moment, but becoming increasingly a growth area. Lots of fashion companies, lots of celebrities jumping on this kind of bandwagon about producing product that's completely digital. I just want to clarify what you mean. What you're saying is we can wear stuff, wear stuff, wear quote, unquote, yeah. without physically making clothing. Yes. I've seen this. There's been a few ad campaigns. that have. Had yeah, I think I'd seen there. it as a campaign. That was exactly what I was thinking about. It. I was like, I don't fully understand it because then, as you said, there's that that element of that hunter-gatherer type thing where we need to have the things. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> as you can see, the cogs are turning in my head. But I just, I'm just completely thrown. But do you know why you don't understand it? An element of that might be because we're influencers and in our heads we're like, well, how can we influence someone to buying the product? If there's no product. Okay, so <laughs> let's let's take a couple of steps back and think about it in a broader sense. And I know it, it totally, it, it calls into question everything. And I, I, I love it for that. Right, and and we, we've we've been teaching. It's a, it's a there's a piece of software called Glow 3D, which is the kind of main proponent of this. And we we brought we brought it on at USW two years ago as a way to reduce um, twirling. So twirling for people outside of the industry is prototyping garments. So often you'll make I don't know half a dozen prototypes before you figure out the final one, and you often have to make those in 3D because you need to see how they hang and all that kind of stuff. And Glow 3D allows you to do that virtually in a 3D space. So you're not wasting fabric, you're not wasting paper, you know, all the kind of things. So a, a sustainable approach. But what, what we found is actually the world has taken this piece of software and embraced it in a different way. So you can produce everything up until the final product digitally. Then you produce your final product digitally. You plug in an avatar. So whoever you want can wear the product. Great. You've got some fantastic photo. As influencers, you're the avatars. You've got your photograph of you looking incredible in this outfit. I can do 200 of those because that's easy to do. Then you can post them all over social. Fantastic. And then the 10 that people love are the ones that we actually manufacture as opposed to mm. as opposed to manufacturing all of them and hoping someone will buy some of them. If this was a video podcast, people would absolutely be cracking up at my facial expressions. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just sitting here with my mouth wide open like, this is so cool. This is so cool. These are innovations that we need to have in the fashion industry. Yeah. It takes pre-order to a, like the next level. Very much so. Yeah. Because the concept of pre-order or pre-ordering products is so that you're eliminating excess waste. But this is That's like, you don't even need to, yeah. It's but think about this idea then, catwalk show can be totally virtual. Fantastic. So I don't, I don't have to produce for that. I don't have to fly everyone around the world to come to my fashion week. I can send mm. the file. I can do the stream. I mean, I can run it as as a 3D projection. If people want to come and sit in a building and watch, you know, holograms walk down a catwalk, we can do it that way. There's a, a squillion ways to do it, but it takes away all of this pressure. Okay, so let's say you do do that and no one wants to buy any of your product. Well, actually, that's not great, but you've wasted a small amount of time. But you've produced all yeah. that stuff anyway. So people can still wear it in photos. As you say, you get your kind of 500 pre-orders. Cool, then you produce 500, not 1,000, and hope that 500 people buy them. Just on the flip side of that, by doing everything digitally, 
and I don't know if I'm being if I'm playing devil's advocate here. Jobs. I'm just thinking about the number of jobs that would be lost or people mm. that would be needed in the industry. And I mean, the digital aspect is amazing, and the fact that you would be reducing carbon footprints and not producing garments, fantastic. But then I'm always taking it back to the idea of people mm. and thinking that you wouldn't need models you wouldn't need the whole production crew the seamstresses everybody the designers like it's all just a bit like oh but there'd be so many people that would near enough be out of work and yeah I mean I I think the fashion industry is littered fashion history is littered with these kind of conversations you know when the automatic machine-based weaving techniques came in during the industrial revolutions the luddites came and smashed the looms because they thought they'd be out of jobs when the sewing machine came in all the hand seamstresses were like um, actually, guys, we do all the sewing. Fair enough. But like anything else, this digital tech it doesn't do it for you. It is a tool. So you need a trained pattern cutter to be able to do the patterns on this product. You know, you need a trained designer uh-huh. to be able to do the, the okay. patterns of the product. What you might find is that the, you know, and I'm going to use the term unskilled, and I don't really mean it because making clothes is very skilled, but unskilled labor, right. as is defined by the industry, you might lose lots of those, the, those positions. And that's fair enough. But probably what you would gain is fewer, better paid skilled positions and we're seeing that now in labor shortages across the hospitality industry people don't want to work jobs where they're not getting paid very much money and the conditions suck so every time there is some kind of revolution in manufacturing some kind of revolution in production stuff like this will happen and i and i'm you know i'm not going to pretend it'll happen overnight i'm not going to pretend it'll it's not going to have a, a an impact but ultimately hopefully the fallout will be positive it is incredible though isn't it it's when you think yeah about it's really cool it's wonderful to see the changes and the evolution of the fashion industry. And as you mentioned, the history there, and it always, it all comes into play, doesn't it? So I understand that there is some sort of battle or fight between the new and the old there, but I think the two will eventually work in harmony, she says, hoping. Well, I, th- I think it's about a digital life and a physical life. If you think, I'm much too old to be in this world, but if you were born in 2010, you're what, 11 years old now, Okay, so you've you've been playing Fortnite. I know, I know you're not supposed to, but you're playing Fortnite since you're about nine. <laughs> Your life is about on, an online space. It's skins, it's upgrades in games, it's all these kinds of things. Mm. And then you've got your physical life outside of that. So there's kind of fairly two distinct hemispheres. So why wouldn't I, and, and this is happening as we speak, why wouldn't I collaborate with a fashion designer to design awesome Fortnite skins? Great, that's a fantastic product. So I would sell those as a designer, make some coin on that. And then the ones that worked really well that were popular, I would make into real clothes for the kids to wear with their friends so they can look like their, their Fortnite avatar. Can we just mm. say that is an amazing, <laughs> it's an amazing idea. And very nicely segues us into our last question. So in terms of like marketing and how you would market like um, a Fortnite skin is essentially and then swerving into the actual world of marketing now. We know that most startup businesses don't really have the budget that's necessary to make to market themselves using traditional methods other than social media, because that's where most brands kind of start out now we've seen. What can these brands do to get the exposure that they so desperately need? Good question. I mean, I think in terms of getting exposure for a young brand, it's incredibly difficult. Social media, as you say, is is, is the, the kind of base platform. And I think that's that's obviously the place to start. But I but I would suggest that to start thinking about the we're speaking all today about kind of the human side of things and start connecting with humans. I mean, there's a lot to be said for networking and a lot to be said for connecting in spaces that aren't traditional fashion spaces. 
So one thing that I found that works quite well is speaking with influencers or speaking with people, going to events, finding people who connect on the same wavelength as you. So back to that kind of why, why do we do these things? So if you're passionate about producing well-made things out of wool, well, then why aren't you talking to British wool suppliers? Why aren't you going to places where they have sheep sales, things like this, you know, places about kind of building those networks and finding those key people, because you will end up dressing someone who appears on BBC to talk about wool export in, in Britain. And suddenly your product is is front and center in the world. So stuff like that is really important is just kind of most people quite like people and most people quite like to be asked questions and to help people. So I would I would reach out and I'd be asking as many people as possible and trying to get involved as many things as possible. One great thing about fashion is it's very visual and very it's universal. It touches every single person every day. So people love fashion. So offering your services as a designer for exhibitions or for events, people tend to really take you up on that stuff. So wanting to borrow nice clothes, wanting to wear nice clothes to wear to an event, people will give you a cutout, people will say your name all day long if you if you give them something they love. That's really interesting. And it, it's the point that you made about TV. And I was just thinking, who have I seen on TV lately wearing different things? And I've seen, obviously, I'm, I always talk about fashion rental because I love it. I've been seeing so many more uh, presenters wearing rented pieces mm-hmm. or people on the red carpet not that there's many at the moment but wearing rented pieces on the red carpet and it's it's true it's how the marketing's gone it's pushed people and people are putting that the PR are putting people's names in people's mouths and that's it and they're getting to rent pieces and it's helping these startups do really really well I think on top of that is is kind of the, the other way around as well talking to other creatives it's expensive to do a shoot it's expensive to to produce a, a film like those things cost money but there's plenty of filmmakers who want to work with you. There's plenty of models, there's makeup artists, hairdressers, like having those conversations, again, being very transparent. I don't have any money. You don't have any money. Can we work together? Like Skill, skill swaps. Skill swaps, the way of forward. course, yeah. Yeah, definitely the way forward. Collaboration is key. And I think in creative industries, to ensure that things are sustainable in the sense of longevity, mm. you have to have people around you. You have to have people that help, people that give you ideas, people that give you energy. There's like so many levels to that. And I met this girl, my waitress last night when I was out and she's a graphic designer and she was just saying, the last 12 months she's been so lonely, but she was so lonely. And then she started working with her friends and she was just like, we don't even do like necessarily make money, but we've just been so creative. And I was just like, love that, it's so great. And that's where magic happens from like being together. I think I think a lot of people have that and young creatives and I, you know, I've been one, so I know that that world is people feel a bit embarrassed about things like that. Like, yeah, I wait tables, but I do this amazing kind of creative thing. And that's cool. That's fine. You don't have to leave university and suddenly become an expert in your career because it's not how it works. Yeah. And you and you and you grow and you change. And and being creative for being creative's sake is the kind of foundation of being a creative person and if you're not that then you should probably think of a different job if you're only in it for the cash it's not the right world because you take so long to get good at something and you have to work so hard to get there that if you're not in there to build networks and to make friends then you'll struggle i think that is a perfect place to end the podcast so if people wanted to find you where could they find you would they be able to reach out to you by email instagram what's best for you yeah, both those things are, are absolutely fine. So you can find me on Instagram at USW Fashion Design, all in one word, or at USW underscore fashion underscore promotion. 
or at USW underscore fashion underscore business, or you can just email me at stephen.wright at southwales.ac.uk. Fantastic. So thank you so, so much for joining us. Diochavel Jan, as I say here in Wales. <laughs> I must say, your Welsh is amazing. I, I've been learning Welsh for a year and it's Wales is an incredible country and the, Wel- the Welsh language is a beautiful language and Welsh people are, are very, very proud of the language and I think it's important as someone who's moved to the UK to kind of assimilate with being part of the UK and I've been welcomed with open arms and it's wonderful. So, we've come to the end of the podcast. Thank you so much for listening to Sustainably Influence and make sure that you're following us and liking and subscribing on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast provider. And we'll see you in the next episode. Bye.